This episode is brought to you by Mad Call Festival. Probably Madrid's biggest and best festival, Mad Call is returning once again this summer and it's going to be one to remember. Not only will there be massive names like Dua Lipa, Janelle Monet, Bring Me the Horizon and The Killers playing, because who doesn't love a bit of Mr Brightside after a day of pints in the sun? There'll also be tons of new buzzy acts like Nia Archives, Crawlers, Kneecap and Picture Parlour scattered across the bill too. Obviously, with it being in Madrid, there'll be plenty of ace Spanish artists to check out across the weekend. Plus, heading to a festival like this is the perfect chance to get a good dose of sunshine and culture, all while getting to watch some of your favourite bands and necking a cheeky sangria or two. This year's Mad Cool Festival takes place from the 10th to the 13th of July in Madrid, and tickets can be purchased now over at their website, madcoolfestival.es. Lisa Wright, this is my co-host Giles Bidder. Woohoo! <laughs> Woohoo! Um, and today we have our third guest on this podcast, which is Dan Smith of Bastille. We got Dan to bring in um, a song, a photo and an object that showed key moments of his youth. And I feel like Dan's youth was sort of uh, quite polar mixed bag of very jolly festival cavorting and sitting in his room being a little dweeb making music and i like his words his words people contain multitudes Uh, (laughs) but yeah i think he painted quite an evocative picture of exactly how you can see how he became a musician i think yeah he's in his own lane isn't he i feel like he didn't really care what other people thought of him growing up he was that person to go home and bury himself yeah. in music, put the headphones on and escape to that world uh, where the rest of us benefit from it, which is pretty nice, isn't it? Exactly. And then he escaped to Glastonbury every year and now he's playing Glastonbury all the time atop the pyramid, atop the pizza. So, yes, from his childhood bedroom to the fields of Glastonbury, this is the newest episode of Before Lady Better DIY magazine and Dan Smith from Bastille. Like, do you have any sort of uh, rituals for, like the first thing that you do when you get back? Just see every, just see see everyone. Mm. Um, I I make a habit of not properly unpacking until the next tour starts, um, which is always really great for feeling settled. I think I think uh, the main thing that we miss I miss London and I miss like friends and family. So it's just well, as soon as I get back, it's like a, a binging on everybody that I know and trying to see them as much as possible. This time I happened to sleep 15 hours, which is more sleep than I've had in as long as I can remember. So that was incredible, but I wish that was the norm. Everyone seems to always get back and get a cold, I guess, because like the adrenaline runs out. It's pretty cool being in a band, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. I grew up in South London and I've lived here all my life. And um, apart from when I went and lived in Leeds for a bit to go to university. But um, other than that, like most of my adult life, you know, very fortunately, we've been off for huge chunks of time. So I think we and I have always really obsessed over coming back. Like, I, I, you know, I think having the privilege of getting to travel allows me to see how amazing London is in so many ways. And as I've grown up, you know, people who've lived here have left and people who leave London love to then like kick it after they've gone and be like, oh, how could I ever have lived in that absolute hellhole? But I, I, I fucking love it here. I, you know, it's like culturally we're so spoiled and um, yeah, and everyone I know is here. So I, I can't really imagine being anywhere else. We had quite an eventful tour. We had a bus crash. 
Oh, shit. Um, I got tonsillitis. I had to cancel a few shows. It was, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, a, it's been an interesting, interesting period. But, um, but we're back. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be home. When you're touring these days, now that you're like a seasoned pro at this, like, are you a bit more sort of, okay, early nights, get the kombucha out, or are you still quite a big party band? Whoa, I'd say I'd say definitely both. <laughs> um, <laughs> every time I go on tour and I'm like, right, I'm not going to go out, I'm not going to drink, um, I'm going to look after myself. I, I, that's when I lose my voice. So there's a weird, like, there's no correlation for me. Like some of, some of the funnest runs we've had in terms of, you know, just really, really good nights out and, and exploring and stuff. Um, those are the ones where my voice seems to be like bulletproof and mm. then bizarre. Uh, so there's no, and there's almost like an anti-correlation between the two, but yeah, we still like, we still, you know, we all still live on a bus together when we tour and, and it's, it's really nice to spend that time and get to go back to cities, you know, this time kind of across America and it was around Europe and the UK and, and do and see stuff we've not done before, like revisit mates. Um, nice. And yeah, like definitely big nights out are still uh, um, quite an important part of our, our touring experience. <laughs> but, um, but also like I'm aware that, you know, I guess getting tonsillitis this time around um, made me very aware of like, I guess just letting people down, you know, I, I don't yeah. want to, um, we, we canceled, we had to, we had to basically cancel a few shows and it's the first time we've ever really done that. Um, and there's obviously like, it's interesting seeing loads of, uh, younger artists come through and, 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 you know, and cancel tours and, and make those decisions based on their wellbeing. Mm. um, has been, has been a real, like it's, it's, we've sort of looked on in admiration because I think we definitely come from the, like, just plough on through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. School of touring where um, even if I'm feeling really rough and I can barely sing, we've still, like, gone on and done the show. <laughs> that's not to say that that's the right thing to do. That's just, like, th those are the decisions we happen to make. So it was interesting this time um, making the decision to not do them when I physically couldn't. And, and just seeing that that's okay and that everyone's really supportive of that and, you know, you can only do so much. Um, yeah. Was a really, it was a really, a really interesting lesson and one that I definitely should have learned more than 10 years ago. But, um, but, you know. I mean, this is the podcast about what you were like as a teenager, those mm. kind of formative years where you make your crew. Yeah. I saw a funny meme about, you know, uh, you know, a guy, a 15 year old boy will find two or three other mates and stick with them for life. <laughs> you know, that's like so many bands, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, what were you, what were you like as a teenager? Where were you hanging out in London? Where were your spots? Underage. We used to just drink in parks a lot, which was obviously really culturally fascinating and definitely taking advantage highly illegal taking advantage of the uh of the joys of london yeah so there's a lot of like a lot of car parks a lot of mates houses and then and then i yeah started to go to like i guess fabric a fair wow. amount um which was really fun i was always scared of fabric fabric's quite, quite a scary oh, me too. The, the mythic staircase <laughs> um yeah uh so that was really fun and yeah, and then I guess just like gigs and festivals, you know, as I, uh, in my later teen years, I spent a lot of time at like Reading mm -hmm. and um, going to Glastonbury and, and um, various different gigs. Um, I, you know, I guess your teenage years span quite a lot of time. So there was like, 
just me and my like you said you cling on to the same like four or five mates and we were yeah. we were sort of um pretty contented slightly nerdy outcasts but you know i was a real film geek but we also just liked having a good time and we used to go to like new metal gigs as well yeah. that's really cool yeah, um, new metal club that you'd always see the same person flying it outside every gig at like the Astoria or the borderline. And it was at the underworld. I think it might still be going Nassin. I yeah. think it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Never went. No. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> never no. If there's basically, if there's anything cool or interesting happening while I was a teenager, I wasn't there. Right. Um, Perfect. Yeah, but, um, in your bedroom, yeah. and when those things were pumping off, you were. Do you spend? A lot I was. Of time I was running. I was running like Scream trilogy fan forums, and um, <laughs> and uh, and writing and writing depressing piano songs that I never wanted anyone to hear. Um, we had a me and my mates had a band, but all it really meant was going around Stu's house and just sitting around. Um, I think all the instruments like were in different rooms, so it was just a sort of excuse to hang around doing nothing were you quite an ambitious kid were you kind of like did you have uh, big ideas absolutely not not at all i had i like i never wanted to be in a band and it never occurred to me to uh you know i think my, my love my love and obsession nerd wise as a kid was was um was like was films i loved like i started with horror at a worryingly young age and then sort of did a deep dive down through to like David Lynch and I guess interesting, weird, like world cinema via like Kubrick, but through to, I don't know, Lars von Trier and, and anything and everything in between. If it was weird, I loved it. Um, and that was pretty much my entire personality. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't really, um, it, I, I didn't read books about musicians or, or think about what touring was like. And, and so when we were lucky enough to, you know, to suddenly be a touring band and that took over our lives. It was all, it was all super new to me. So yeah, as a teenager, like I made music and I made songs, but it was very much just like, a, I guess it was like my equivalent of playing video games. It's like what I did by myself and like in the evenings or whatever. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I know a lot of people who start bands or start music to, for like social reasons, or it was really just a, a thing I did. So yeah. saying about uh films there and like while some of the stuff that you were referencing was obviously a bit more sort of niche and cool the film <laughs> that you chose to bring in uh was the scream three bootleg yes uh, um yes you also mentioned i mean what was the i mean a i love that you've specifically chosen scream three and not even the original one because i feel like normally the idea goes original is the best every sequel after gets like a little bit worse whereas three's the one for you it's not the one for me it's like it's absolutely it's by far by far and away the worst of all seven screen films like there's no i'm not like i'm not sugarcoating it at all but at that point at that at that donnie darko loving point in my life where like donnie darko requiem for a dream and um you know and uh and the screen films it was so exciting for me like i I had a website. I had a fucking screen website. Like that's how into it I was. Um, Wait, so you built and maintained a screen website? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, talking like um, fan forum. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I'd make like mock screen four posters for like a film that didn't exist yet. Like I was that. I was that <laughs> level of cool. What was the URL? I don't. Remember. But this is the thing. Like 
It sounds like I'm making it up. I do not remember. And I've dug. I'm sure. I'm sure other people who are better could dig um, very quickly and successfully. But I, yeah, I, I, my my claim to fame is that I did like, I did a really bad four with the face of like Nev Campbell, Nev Campbell like behind it, like and and I'm making it in Microsoft Paint because that's about as that's about as uh, <laughs> as far as my Photoshop skills went. And it was on my website that I then I lost the access to the website. Can't remember what it is. Blah blah. But that four reemerged when actual screen four came out and uh, like I'm, uh, my, my, I'm convinced that they found it and we're like oh let's use that so screen three it just came at a time where i was like a teenager and didn't have access to i guess it was obviously obviously pre-streaming and it just get, having access to a lot of culture was harder back in those days you know i remember mm. i remember becoming obsessed with david lynch but you couldn't get Twin Peaks the TV series at all. You just couldn't get it anywhere. So you'd have to, you'd have to like find, find old videos or bootlegs or whatever, or, you know, and so from when Scream 3 came out, it's probably the most excited I've ever been in my life for something to happen. Only to be seriously let down. Well, no, I think I loved it because I had some serious, like rose tinted glasses on, but um, and I think I, I, I was such as I probably read the script before I saw it. I don't know. I, that's how that's how deep this went. But I remember, so, like, I think like a friend's mum's like cleaner's boyfriend sold bootleg videos and was like, oh, I've got a copy from from I've got a copy of Screen Three. And somehow, I mean, that's how obsessed I must have been. It made it to the grapevine that that would be a thing that I would want. So I remember like buying or being given this VHS that was literally someone with a handicam in a in in the <laughs> cinema filming it grainy bad can't hear anything can't really see anything and i like i'm like, like bringing it into school like anyone would give a fuck being like i've got scream three um i was so heavily invested like there was no way i couldn't not love it were you too young to go and watch it in the cinema then is this why you yes have- yes i was too young to see it in cinema i think it also was at a time where stuff came out at quite different times around the world. So it would have been out in America right. and then it wouldn't have come to the UK for like six months or something. Um, these were tough and unrelatable times, but <laughs> um, I can't say it's because I love the film. In recent years, when they started releasing new screen films, I've made a, a, a lot of my friends watch them in anticipation of then dragging them to the cinema to watch the new ones. And, um, you know, it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting, like, confronting experience watching something you gave that much mental space to as a child, watching it as an adult with a slightly more critical eye. Um, Scream 3 definitely didn't hold up at all. Didn't hold um, But, you know, it made, me, it made me remember how excited I was at the time. And I think there's something about that, that sort of young to mid-teenage obsession that you can have. I don't know why our brains just pick mm. these things i mean it makes me cringe so hard thinking back about it and there's lots of objects i could have chosen to define that era of my life but if i'm being honest it didn't get much more exciting for me at the age of i don't know what i was like 14 or whatever but getting that getting that screen three um vhs was wildly exciting i really want to know more about this website as well so like i know anyone else go on it was it a thing where you'd actually managed to cultivate like a little pocket of the internet of like other scream nerds talking to you or was it just you talking at no one i imagine it was me talking to a very large absent void um um, but yeah there was a community of people um for sure it was also at a time where you know the internet was at a stage but any scraps of information about a film like it was pre-social media so um like 
a photo being released from a film would be like an entire page in yeah. Empire Magazine. And if it came, you know, as, as one or two like from the set stills coming out was like wildly exciting in a way that now you'd be like, well, the entire cast are live blogging it all on Instagram. So you know what it's going to be like. I mean, you've got to have a gateway, right? Like it's like, you know, when you ask people what their first album was, it's like no one's first album was like a can B-sides album. It was, you know, Oasis or something like that. And then you have to start with the things that feel accessible and then you kind of go a little bit further left or right and then you kind of you know you go down those wormholes like i think yeah. it screams great for like you know getting getting you involved on the first level and then you can go as nerdy as you like from there and uh, yeah and i guess musically i wasn't on forums and stuff but i did i did definitely take a hard pivot away from <clears throat> new metal when i realized that i just didn't like it and was only <laughs> I did listen to it because everybody else was, <laughs> um, um, and then and then and then somehow landed on Regina Spector and um, Anthony and the Johnsons as my two absolute favourite artists, and yeah, um, and I guess those were my first experiences of of really loving albums that no one else I knew gave a fuck about, and 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 that was fine. Like you know, the, those they were really personal albums to me. I remember. Like John Kennedy on XFM used to do full album playbacks um, in the evenings, and I again, it's almost weird that I can't sleep, seeing as I used to go to sleep with the radio on. So like often it would be John Kennedy, like so mad to think that I was trying to sleep with like a commercial radio station that pumped out adverts every five minutes and like really loud jingles and that played alternative music. No wonder my entire sleep pattern is completely upside down. nauseatingly honest for you guys with the stuff I picked I could have I could have I could have heavily curated it and made myself seem like a much more much more interesting well-rounded and, and cooler person than I am well look this sets us up for your photo could you describe what's in the photo for us Dan it is me in a probably highly flammable um tiger onesie um crouched down in a tent at quite a muddy rainy Glastonbury festival doing what I guess can only be described as the impression of a tiger with my face and hands. Um, yeah. And is that liquid acid that you're drinking? Um, no comment. It does <laughs> uh, look quite pity. Yeah, it does. I think it was probably like old, old decanted red, like white wine or something, or, or like some whiskey and whis- probably whiskey and white wine. I don't know. It's Glastonbury. Who knows? Um, what are your memories when you think back? Like what are, what are your moments that the, the flashback moments you get from that festival that year? I, I, I think that was the year that we f- sort of first played and um, I had to ticket. I bought my ticket. So I've, I'm obsessed with Glastonbury and I've, I've sort of ever since first going the year that <clears throat> Amy Winehouse and, Jay-Z played on the pyramid stage where me and my friends just waited down the front on the barrier for the entire day until those gigs, which was amazing because those are the two people I most wanted to see and they played back to back. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was pretty amazing. I I think it was the following, basically I've, I've since the beginning, me and my mates, when we first went, got completely obsessed with that weekend and, and, you know, would do the like laptops and phones out every year, trying to get tickets, fail, try again, resale, maybe get them, maybe not. Um, so the, so it was it was always like when we started the band, it was a big deal to me that we got to play there. And um, 
Yeah. There's this organization called it's huge. Yeah, well, there was this organization called Strummerville, which was set up um, yeah. in sort of memory of Joe Strummer, like by his family and, and people associated with his world. It's kind of a charity and organization for young musicians, and they offer, I guess, like a platform as well as advice and encouragement and and and, and you know all that kind of stuff. Which for me, as someone who you know, didn't really know other people that were making music apart from a couple of my friends, you know, had no idea what the music industry was, how it worked. It was just this kind of ephemeral thing that sat over there. In you know, in my mind, it was like old white men in suits was what the music industry was. So, you know, if you ever saw someone coming to a shit pub you were playing, yeah, in a suit, you'd be like, they must be from a label. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just someone that's finished work that day. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we were, we had the chance to play via Strummerville at their, their campfire. Yeah. Which is amazing. And there's a sort of, there's like a little wooden stage where there was at that point, it's moved around a few times, but um, they were like, we'd love you to come play, but we can't, I think they could get us one ticket and there's the four of us in the band. So I had bought my ticket. I think I, well, I've got two, one, I was there with my friends, but one for me and one for one of the other guys. And then Strummerville gave us one ticket. And then there was an empty space. So Kyle basically, via some connections, he had to, Kyle is our keyboard player in Bastille. He, um, in order to get into that Glastonbury, he had to get in, the, he had to climb into a sofa with a guy that he'd never met before. The sofa was covered up, put in a lorry. The lorry came into Glastonbury like on like the Sunday night or the Monday got unloaded and he basically had to sleep on the floor of like a gazebo for Monday, oh, Tuesday, Wednesday. I think we played on the Thursday night or the Friday. And then I, I was there like as a punter and then Woody, our drummer, came in in his van with like all our gear in the back. So we had to go find him in one of the car parks, like do like an hour's walk with carrying all the gear in like pretty thick mud. It basically was just as it should be, it was a lot of effort. <laughs> and and uh, it was, it was an amazing story. first experience. Poor Kyle, like he was, he was an absolute shell of a person by the time we played. But we thought we were like, how can we be interesting? Oh, let's two of us randomly wear tiger onesies. That'll really, uh, I don't know. Wait, that's that where the onesie comes in. This was like yeah, a- Yeah, like I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a like, I'm not a, oh, get me dressed up. I'm wacky kind of like, person at the best of time so i it's not like it's not like the norm for me to be dressed up as a as an animal um this is your entertain this is your stage get up yes yes it's 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 a wonder to to everyone including myself that i'm still allowed to make music <laughs> no we support it in the first we place. support um misled decisions missteps so, that's yeah. what it's about so i think kyle and i were in these tiger onesies and i remember there being a conversation like woody and we were like well, what are we gonna do like we can look mad if we're just in our normal clothes and you guys are in tiger onesies it's like i don't know if it's you that's gonna look mad or us that's gonna look mad anyway <laughs> somebody somewhere found like boiler suits for them so <clears throat> the two of them were in boiler suits the two of us were in tiger anyway we did that show by strummerville campfire and then we did another gig um up the hill at the rabbit hole so my memories of that year are just like just carrying heavy gear in the rain up and down hills through a really muddy Glastonbury, but both gigs were great. You know, it's, it's, um, Brilliant. they were both really fun and, and, um, very kind of ad hoc. And, and, and I really speak to that time when we first started, where we were like just doing anything and everything to get a gig and sleeping on floors and, you know, 
like cramming us and everything we could into into a car and you know driving around the country and whatever it was a nice time it was quite like a naive time i think a lot of the first you know few years of, of us going full time with it were, were were quite naive i didn't know anything about how things worked so it was all like firstly going through it as an anxious wreck um obviously we had each other but it was all you know it was all kind of new to all of us and uh figuring things out and having these mad experiences but not really being prepared for them so just yeah there's a lot of that working it out as you go along um yeah very much so yeah if you're like a big sort of uh glastonbury devotee are there any particular treasured memories of your times i mean everyone's got those sort of weird glastonbury stories where it's like you know you go around a a corner and you suddenly see like a entire naked hot tub of people or something like that like it's such a mad place isn't it like yeah. what's your what's your favorite uh memories for your time oh, that's impossible i mean there've been like so many mind-bendingly life-changing gigs like so many fun nights out in the you know in the in the nighttime areas like this year there was a sort of chunk in the afternoon where there wasn't anything that we wanted to watch and we just did the full lap in the sunshine, which which I'd never done before in the daytime. So it's just really nice to see how much work and effort and creativity goes into every single little corner of that place. Um, oh man, that's, it's too hard to, it's too hard to pick. Some of my favorite moments are the most embarrassing moments. Some of the most ridiculous moments have happened in that place, you know, <laughs> meeting random people, seeing amazing shows, uh, missing amazing shows. I think probably quite a lot of my, they're like the sort of like fictional list of Glastonbury regrets is probably quite long. It's also <laughs> also always interesting getting back and watching it on TV and being like, oh, that's what happened. Okay, that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't my experience. Go um, for the full weekend, even when you're playing now. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like I'm a I'm a nightmare to everyone in in our band crew and sort of team because it's quite busy prime real estate festival time you know if you if you wanted to you could be doing three or four different festivals around europe that weekend and i'm like sorry guys i've got it's a, not happening. Put, put a little put a little ring fence around that um i love yeah i love it and so if you know in the years that we've been fortunate enough to play you know either secret shows or, or our main stages um i always ask nicely if we can play on the friday or thursday <laughs> to, get, to get that bit out of the way One person you wouldn't see at Glastonbury is a a certain purple, pink, <laughs> yellow spotted. I see where you're animal. going. Would you would you say would you say he's an animal? I don't know what the fuck he is, but in, you know we're living through we're living through a perpetual retro culture, so you never know. He could. It wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me in 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 a genuinely possible version <laughs> of reality that he would pop up on a stage somewhere and get. A bunch of people really excited. Could you introduce our, formally, could you introduce our, uh, your third pick? So I was asked to pick, a, what was it, a song from my childhood. When I was growing up, my, my sister had really good taste in music and I used to, you know, she's older than me, so I used to copy a lot of what she did and think that she was the barometer of cool. So I loved a lot of the music that she loved, which, you know, m- m- my memories of like the first single that I owned, <clears throat> I think it was like, re- um, well, It's Killing Me Softly by the Fugees is my memory of it. So every time people ask you, like, what's the first piece of music you ever bought? It's that. I, just in thinking for this, was like, I think in reality, it was the Mr. Blobby novelty Christmas song that went to number one. 
Um, and I guess I, I guess I picked it because like I've just in in interviews in not wanting to talk about myself, I've probably got quite a lot of mileage out of saying how much I love the Fuji's and Lauren Hill and how massive and important you know miseducation of Lauren Hill and, and the score were you know for me growing up, which they were, and you know in terms of where you find your music and and um, and who you who you get it from. But I do. This is not the show to be that no, cool person. But, but like, there's a. I basically haven't checked the dates because I'm pretty sure it would definitely be Mr. Robbie that was my first piece of music that I owned, <laughs> and and I, I was talking to um, our managers, one of whom is Welsh and one of whom is American, and obviously the American manager was like, "What, what is?" What is this? What is a Bobby? So I sent him. I sent him the video, and it was a real reminder of quite how insane it was. Um, <laughs> and just Mr. Blobby as a concept, everything about it—the song, the sound of the song, the video, the song itself—it's so strange. And this is again a little bit like with my Scream Three videotape. This is not about like a cultural endorsement from me now. It's just about. <laughs> It's just about raw honesty. And <laughs> I worry slash think that the first piece of music I owned or bought or was given might have been that song. Which <laughs> I, it's, it's just something I have to live with That's like for the rest of my life, which is fine. Um, but, um, it's weird that he sort of captured the public imagination so much, isn't it? Because when you look at him, A terrifying creature very he's objecti- object- objectively it's horrifying like yeah I said he's, he's he is absolutely terrifying to look at um even with the kindest warmest most nostalgic eyes the idea of putting that in front of a child seems kind of like borderline abusive um <laughs> and and that man dominated um dominated a lot of airtime there must be so many of them around the world that really speak to like a place and a time. Like anyone outside of the UK looking at it would be like, I'm sorry, what? Um, anyone now looking at it would be like, I'm, excuse me, um, sorry, hello. Uh, uh, is this real life or have I just wandered into somebody else's uh, like residual LSD trip? Yeah. Um, it's funny how we don't question things. I don't think I've ever questioned to myself internally what who where did he come from mr Blobby? Uh, yeah and i I, sh- I should have done this research and i didn't because i'm i'm shit but um i w- i would love to know like who wrote the song whose idea was it what like label put it out there must have been like i imagine like boardrooms full of a and r guys and and label people <laughs> being like let's do this like was it a charity single was it not like who endorsed it must have been like, yeah i mean you Fucking hope so. Hope so. Um, uh, you could ever write a sort of. Uh, is what you're saying that you want to be the person that pens the next 2024 version of Blobby? Who, who is who is 2024's Blobby? You know what? I actually think it's still Blobby. Funny that you said. Imagine putting him on a stage now because I went to go and see Self Esteem at Hammersmith Apollo. I think at the end of last year, and she yeah. brought him out. On the encore, Blobby came out and did this dance to one of her songs, and everyone, I think she has a crowd, you know, I think everyone's, there's a lot of like late 20s, early 30s, basically prime Blobby nostalgia time. Everyone lost their minds. It was like she brought out like Macca or something. I I also think that even if 
I mean, obviously the atmosphere itself as theme shows is, 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 is amazing and completely like electric anyway. But what are you going to say? I imagine that <laughs> even if you brought Mr. Blobby out as a brand new concept with no level of nostalgia involved, people would lose their minds in positive and negative ways anyway. I think like just on a purely visual yeah. basis, yeah. the second that he waddles out and those eyes start to roll uncontrollably, like everyone's losing their mind. I don't care where you are or what you know, or what you don't know. Like, yeah, uh, for, for better or worse, it's, yeah, you're in a, you're in a waking fever dream slash nightmare. <laughs> But yeah, no, sure, sure. I mean, like, you know, Kate Bush had her moment with Stranger Things. Um, not that, not, I don't say, I mean, I am a, a massive Kate Bush fan, so I don't mean to be reductive in saying that. But, you know, she had, she had a little resurgent minute with mm. running up that hill. You know, maybe this year it's Blobby's time. It's Blobby's time. Yeah, he could... Yeah. Uh, how many uh, how many monthly listeners do you think Mr. Blobby has? Are you going to have the answer to this? I'm going to find out, so you can you can put your wages oh, in. Oh God! There. I mean, it's either going to be literally one, and it's Dan, or it's going to be like a horrifying amount, like an amount that makes you sort we've, of. Uh, we've done our research, and we're tracing all of these listens back to one location in South London, <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow he's still the largest streaming artist in the world right now. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But also the kind of cultural figures around Mr. Blobby are not very positive. No, not figures. at all. I mean, they're really not. Wolf Harris, I mean, they're really, and I think it's, of, it's, it's from a it's from a very troubling set of media figures and a very troubling time, um, and which is which is interesting and complicated in and of itself. So I think I have to be very selective. You know, I have to like I have to circle off Mr. Blobby and ignore everything and anything around it. Um, him, him, it. What are we, what are we uh, saying? Say <laughs> um, it. Yeah, sort of. Um, but I mean, there's a Mister at the start of it. That's true. Um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was written by Philip, uh, a novelty song performed by the character Mister Blobby. Um, it was, it was number one on the 11th of December for one week, but reclaimed the top slot to become Christian number one that year. Fantastic. <laughs> written by David Rogers. And produced by uh, Paul Shaw and David Rogers. So uh, that's okay. That we'll never hear from yeah. their living on, the, the, on, on a yacht yeah, yeah. in Hawaii. But, um, despite its chart success, it has been critically panned by no. critics, often naming it as one of the worst songs ever recorded. Oh. Guys, Wikipedia says it, so that is that is, that that is, is fact. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's like certain certain sort of not okay people were in the video. But also Carol Vorderman was in it and she's, you know, look at her now. She's like such an amazing voice for justice and holding political figures to account. So, you know, maybe it's not all bad. Hope you've enjoyed talking about your youth. Do you, do you think about it much? Do you talk about it much? As we get older, me and my sister, like she's she's had kids now. And so like, I guess you start to see in, in, in them growing up, you start to, I guess, I, I'm really close to them. So you sort of compare it back to your mm. childhood a bit, which, which sort of brings that stuff back up again in quite a funny way. And obviously with the mates that you have still from that time, you, you know, you talk about it. Um, yeah. And we live in the danger. I mean, digital cameras had just come out for us. Right. Yeah. So there are, there is a lot of photographic evidence. There's some photographic evidence. I think there's, I think people like our age, very luckily hit a kind of 
hit us hit on a sweet spot where um it stuff just wasn't as online and as as recorded as it is now so i think there was like mm-hmm. um yeah anyway but it's, it's it's funny to think back to that stuff and and, and i think like you know being in being in a band there's a lot of people in my position um you know as, as the lead singer of a band who've done okay to like who love to i don't know um invent a bit of a character around who they are or try and maintain like a level of cool or bravado or whatever. And I've seen a lot of our peers, you know, do that to varying degrees of success. And, and with some people, it feels really genuine with others. It feels like bullshit, but it's, it's a, uh, I I've just always been a bit embarrassing and I've never tried to, I love what we make and I love getting obsessed and I'm quite serious about the stuff that we make and you know, that stuff. But as a person, I just, I've always been a bit of a, bit of a loser so why the fuck would i pretend <laughs> so it's quite nice it's quite nice it's quite nice to uh to, to air that but some sort of like to sort of join the dots between the mr blobby song uh uh embarrassing flammable tiger onesie and and the a scream three uh pirate video in an already defunct form of visual watching and somehow in the midst of that venn diagram that quite specific venn diagram sits me who somehow still has a job so yeah to celebrate <laughs> and that was Dan Smith of Bastille lovely Dan lovely Dan we had a nice chat with Dan didn't we you know what I think there are some bands that are so far away in your periphery that you sort of don't really expect to hear personal stories and Dan Smith has done that for me I never thought I'd speak to Dan I never thought I'd hear kind of childhood stories from Bastille in a way they're kind of a bit cool for that right my perception of them is too cool. They're very famous, aren't they? Like, I think Dan's one of those people. Although, you know what? I would say, though, that he is the most famous person that I see regularly just wandering <laughs> around at gigs. Like, he's quite sort of one of the people, yeah. He's like a regular fixture, just like, you'll just see him, like, bumbling through a festival field. Or just like turning up at like Brixton Academy. Oh, maybe not Brixton Academy at the moment, but you know, soon to be returned Brixton Academy. Um, so yeah, he's one of us, as he also demonstrated through the medium of podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, maybe go back and listen to the previous episodes. We've already had equally delightful in very different ways, different people, different ways, different stories with Sigrid and Olivia Dean. There will be another episode next Tuesday and then the Tuesday after that. And heck, heck, maybe even the Tuesday after that as well. Um, Rolling, 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 rolling like a river. (laughs) No? Anyone? Okay. exactly exactly that exactly that yes um so if you did like that chat with dan and us maybe you could go and like the podcast on apple or spotify or whatever platform you're listening to it on maybe you could go and give us a little subscribe so that you get the next one direct into your inbox maybe you could give us a review that would be nice um and then if you like the podcast Lisa, you're on fire this You'll week. You'll probably like DIY Magazine Whoa. as a whole. Our new issue is out now. It's got Lauren Maybury from Churches. It's got, I'm going to call it, a pretty exclusive first chat um, from her new solo era. She goes deep into what people can expect. We've got all of the goss from her recent American tour. 
it's a great issue um go give that a read go to diy mag forward slash shop to give it a purchase or a subscribe can't actually subscribe to it just just read it just read it it's fine isn't it we will see you again next week for another episode of before they knew better with diy magazine bye this episode is brought to you by Rock in Rio Lisboa, the sister event to Brazil's iconic music festival Rock in Rio. The Portuguese leg of the event is set to celebrate its 20th anniversary with one of its biggest editions yet and over 80,000 attendees across its four days, of which some of them could be you. Taking place over two weekends this June, some of music's biggest names will be taking to the stage in Lisbon. We're talking Ed Sheeran, we're talking Doja Cat, even the Jonas Brothers are getting in on the action. And and with each day specially curated by genre, there's literally something for everyone. I went to the town in Rio last year, which is curated by the same people as Rock in Rio. And it was, I'm going to say, one of the wildest festivals I've ever been to. This year's Rock in Rio Lisboa takes place on the 15th, 16th, 21st and 22nd of June. And tickets can be purchased now via their website, rockinriolisboa.pt.